Today we're on Lesson 5, Answers to Two Common Egalitarian Objections to Male Headship in Marriage. And the first objection is that the word head used in 1 Corinthians 11.3 and Ephesians 5.23 means source and not authority over. And so let's go ahead and read those verses. 1 Corinthians 11.3 says, But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. A very parallel passage in Ephesians 5 says, For the husband is the head of the wife, as as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. And so the... Um, those who would interpret the scriptures to get the scriptures to say that uh, men and women uh, don't have distinctions, and particularly in marriage, there's complete equality of of everything, roles and, and whatever. And so they would interpret that word head not to mean authority, but as source. Like we would use the word uh, the headwaters of, of a river, that's referring to where the river begins. It's a source of the, the flow. Well, on page 24 here, we've got several uh, responses to that. And, and I might add that this lesson particularly is going to get into some technical details that are very helpful in our interpretation of Scripture and some very important lessons about how to interpret Scripture. So quite apart from this particular uh, topic. but So one thing to do is to see, well, how is that word used in, in the New Testament? How is it used elsewhere in literature? And it turns out that this word for head is the Greek word kephale, and it's it's always referred to and translated as head, usually it refers to a literal head, like the head of your body, right? Uh, But sometimes it's used metaphorically to refer to um, like like the head of the church, right? It's it's, uh, meaning the, the one in authority over the church. And so you see this in several passages here. Uh, Mark 12.10, for example, have you not even read this scripture? Jesus said, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. And that word chief is the same word that's usually translated head, kephale. Um, and the chief cornerstone is obviously the, the, the key element of the foundation that sort of sets in place the whole structure. And In Ephesians 1, for example, verse 22, And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him, that is Christ, as head over all things to the church. So here, again, that word head is referring to Christ as head of the church. And it says particularly that all things would be under in subjection under his feet. And then Colossians 1.18 Again, speaking of Christ, he also is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. Again, it's speaking of his 
preeminent role, his authority over the church. In Colossians 2.10, and again speaking of Christ, in him you have been made complete, and he is the head over all rule and authority. It's it's clear, it's not just a uh, source here, it's referring to authority. Well, a a similar or another argument that's brought up often, at least sometimes, in this context has to do with the Arian heresy way back in the early church. What was the Arian Arian heresy? Well, it held that um, since Jesus submitted to the will of the Father, he must not be equal with God. He must be If he's in subjection, he's inferior to God the Father. Well, that's a heresy. Um, It's it's trying to connect the dots and say, well, if this is true, that must also be true. And that's not always the case. Like with the Trinity, we've we've already seen this, that uh, um, Father, Son, Holy Spirit are one God, three persons, and even though there's hierarchy within the Godhead, they're nonetheless completely equal. Um, but there's there's voluntary submission and order even within the Godhead. And we've already looked at that being a, a picture a little bit of how God designed marriage, that there would be complete equality, but also hierarchy and order and According to God's design, there would be um, uh, roles. So anyway, the Arian heresy had that was wasn't about marriage. It was all about who is Christ. I mean, that was um, a, a very important debate. A lot of debates early on: was Jesus God? Was he man? Was he both? How does this all fit together? You can imagine how. How um, challenging these things were, and fortunately, by God's grace, um, the early church, searching the scriptures, eventually settled on what was true: that uh, God is is one God, yet eternally existing in three persons, uh, having equal substance. They they concluded, and that's a key word. Did they have the New Testament back then? Pieces were available when these debates were happening. That's right. Because I would just yep. question the part where Jesus basically says multiple times that he is God and him and the Father are one. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. But but you can imagine, you know, the, the nature of the Trinity, I mean, it's something that none of us really can fully grasp, right? And um, they clearly didn't have as much uh, teaching as much of the scriptures, as much widespread use of the scriptures and interpretation to, you know, we basically stand on the shoulders of those who um, uh, in the early church um, understood the truth from scripture and we just take for granted now, sure, God is one God in three persons and we, we don't we're not tripped up by it as much as you would be if this was a brand new concept to you, right? And so when it was a brand new concept to them, and even though you can see it taught a bit in the Old Testament, 
it, it wasn't really in the forefront of anybody's thinking until God made more revelation. So um, it's, it's not unnatural that there would be some wrestling about what the, the truth really is. And in the process of that, proposals would come forward that are heretical. Um, and that was actually a, a good thing in the sense that it forced those who were committed to the scriptures to search out the scriptures and confirm what is indeed true. And that's a very helpful uh, foundation for us and a good precedent. So anyway, that, that was Arian heresy. So what's the point in our context? Well, one of the early church fathers, um, John Chrysostom, attacked the Arian heresy by pointing out that the head and here referring even just literally to a human body, the head is of the same substance as the rest of the body. So Paul's use of the human body as an analogy emphasizes that equality and headship submission can, in fact, coexist. So our physical head is of the same uh, substance as the rest of our body, and yet the head... um, is the head of the body and it's directing movement and, and this kind of thing. And so Chrysostom uh, was a main um, um, opponent of this heresy and used a lot of analogies like that to make his point. Well, anyway, today, some claim that Chrysostom declared only Uh, that only a heretic would understand Paul's use of head to mean chief or authority over, and that's not at all what he said. Um, He agreed only that the word kephale uh, means authority, and that uh, those who... And and the the, the Arians, those who purported this this heresy um, agreed with that point that the word kephale means head it means authority and their part their confusion was if it means authority which it does then Jesus must be inferior to the father who had authority over him and that's where Chrysostom and the other church fathers says no 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 no, you got that wrong those two can happen at the same time there can be complete uh, oneness a sameness of the same substance within the Godhead, and yet there can be within the Godhead this hierarchy, this um, authority and submission, and it's all harmonious. Um, and that was the point. So what's interesting here is that those who raise this today um, are, are a, a, as an example of how um, the word head must not mean authority, are attacking themselves because the Arians who made this heretical statement didn't have any issue with that. They said, of course it means authority. And of course it does. And um, so I think that's an example of how if if you want to try to use scripture or um, some of the early church history to make your point and interpret scripture in a way that scripture doesn't teach, you're inevitably going to be twisting not only scripture, but even history. And 
misinterpret the historical thing that you're counting on to make your point because it's just the opposite point you would get from the history. So it's kind of ironic. I hope that wasn't too confusing. <laughs> um, so let's go to point number three on page 25. If kephale means source, then Paul here is saying that God the Father is the source of Christ. Right? Suggesting that Christ was created. And that is the Arian heresy. If it means source, it means that that. Christ came from, he was created by, he had a beginning. And that's, that's heretical. Um, so what these egalitarian objectors um, agree with was the actual heresy of the Arian heresy, not their conclusion about the word head. Um, so it's, Rather ironic, but that's the way it is when you when you try to get the scriptures and even church history to um, to say what you want them to say. Eventually, you're going to be twisting them, and it's going to backfire. Look at number four. Uh, this is the same word that Paul uses in verses. Uh, we, we looked at First Corinthians eleven three, but if you continue reading. For example, in verse 10, it says, Therefore the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. And so again, that word head and authority are connected. Um, and so again, that's another, another um, stumbling block, I would say, of those who would try to twist the scriptures, is that they take a verse out of context. Right? And if you look at the, the broader context and you see how that same word that they're camping out on is used, it's just consistently used in association with authority, headship, right? not source. Um, and then a fifth point here that, um, that uh, Wayne Grudem particularly has brought out that the proposed alternative translation of kephale to mean source does not have any support from ancient Greek literature or in any Greek lexicons. Um, Kroger, this one who I quoted from in number two here, who would make this try to make this point that it means source, apparently borrowed that meaning from a different Greek word, arche, which is generally translated beginning, first, authority, or ruler, but it can mean source also. That's not true of the word kephale. It's never used in that way. But the word that is actually used in the Greek here in these verses is kephale. So, it's kind of technical, but um, does that make sense to raise any questions so far? I get the impression that uh, the, the Aryan heresy is under an impression that to be less than authority would be a weakness. In inferiority. Yeah, inferiority. Right, yeah. right. And so th those today who would say that um, the idea that a wife would submit to her husband 
would put her in a place, put him in a place of authority and her in a place of inferiority, kind of second class kind of thing. And yet to say that is to say that Jesus, in submitting to the Father, is inferior to the Father, and that's heresy. That's this Arian heresy. Uh, It doesn't mean inferior. It means different role. And um, uh, the same is true in, in marriage. The same is true in the church. We'll look at the church in a few weeks. Um, but they're just different roles. Uh, and you remember, I, um, I gave an example a few weeks ago. You know, if, if, I were, um, if I were driving down Route 32 or 95 or something and were uh, going over the speed limit and was pulled over by a police officer and he came to the car and I realized he's probably younger than either of my sons, um, I would nonetheless address him as sir. Why? Because he has authority, and he's exercising that authority correctly, right? And I need to be in submission to that authority, not because of him as an individual inherent value kind of thing, but because he's in a position of authority that I need to be respectful of and cooperate with and be submitted to. But if he were to come to the church and were to be a member here at the church, he would be under my authority as one of the elders here, not because of anything of value of me, but because of position, just different roles. And, and so the context makes a lot of, um, has a lot of importance on the nature of that relationship. Right? And the context in the Godhead is that Father, Son, Holy Spirit are all equally God, same essence, same substance, all God, but in some mysterious way, there is hierarchy. Submission to the Father. Uh, the Father and the Son sending out the Holy Spirit. Um, it's all done in harmony, in unity, um, and equality. Uh, and the same is true in, uh, in marriage. Just different roles by God's design. The second one. Paul exhorted all believers to submit to one another, so husbands and wives need to submit to each other equally. That's the, the notion here, the objection. And so in Ephesians 5.21, it says, be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Well, let's look at that entire passage. And again, looking at context is always important, right? So that appears in this somewhat lengthy sentence in Ephesians 5, beginning in verse 18, where it says, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father, and being subject to one another in the fear of Christ, wise to your own husbands as to the Lord. Um, So that, um, I think maybe in most translations, certainly in in the New American Standard, it's translated be subject to one another, but really it's not not the... um, 
the, the, the command here is to be filled with the Spirit. And each of these four bullets that I have in, in the, the box that contains the verse begin with participles. You know, how do we go about being, what, what does it look like to be filled with the Spirit? There are evidences of it. <clears throat> Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns. Singing and making melody in, with your heart to the Lord. Giving thanks and being subject to one another in the fear of Christ. So it's in the context of being filled with the Spirit, which is the command, and it's one of the evidences of it. Okay, so that's just foundation. If you flip over, the sentence introduces an extended section that explains in more detail how that submission is going to work. And so right there at the end of Ephesians 5, it's talking about the relationship between a husband and a wife. You get into chapter 6, and it talks about how children are to be subject to their parents in the Lord. Then you continue reading, and it talks about how slaves are to be subject to their masters as to the Lord. So um, that, whole, that whole passage that we read from leads into extended illustrations of how this submission works in the home, or in the marriage, in, in the family with the children, and even with slaves and their masters. So in each of those cases, the submission is just one way. Right? Let's skip over the one for the, the um, husbands and wives for a second and go to the, the children. Fathers are not to provoke their children to anger, but must bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So when it says that children are to submit to their parents, is that a mutual submission? No. Right? Likewise, when it speaks to uh, masters treating their slaves with good, uh, good intent and, and, and so on, as unto the Lord without threatening, the... the um, Slaves are to submit to their masters as they would to the Lord, but that's not a, um, a, a mutual submission either, right? There is hierarchy there, and the, the lesson is about how to, how to live out that hierarchy and respond to it and act within it in a, in a God-fearing, God-honoring way. Um, and so let's go back then to the the husband and wife example at the end of Ephesians 5, he gives a couple of examples of how husbands are to love their wives. As Christ loved the church, is there mutual submission there? No, the submission's one way. The church is submitting to uh, Christ. And also, uh, the illustration Paul gives there is loving their wives as their own bodies. And so it's speaking of the quality of the, the one who is exercising authority. It's not a, a harsh, autocratic, unloving exercise of authority. It's characterized by the way Christ loved us and uh, the way we would take care of and nurture our own bodies even, right? So uh, in none of those cases... None of the illustrations that are given is there a two-way submission at all. And so that's, again, part of the context. So let's delve in a little bit more to this being subject to 
passage in Ephesians 5.21. The, the verb there, and I'm on point number four, on page 26. The verb there is hupotasso in the Greek. And everyone, even those who would have a different view of, of um, the, even those who have this egalitarian view of, of the relationship between husbands and wives, agree that the word hupotasso always means um, uh, subjection, the way it's, it's, it's actually used in the text there. Uh, it means be, being under ordained authority. The hupo is the under, and the tasso is the ordained authority. Um, so that's used a lot in Scripture. And it's always used to refer to one-way submission, not mutual submission. So let's look at some examples here. In Luke 10, you know, Christ sent out the 70 and the 70 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Was that two-way submission? No. Uh, Romans 13.1. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Is that two-way sub- submission? No. It's us being subject to the governing authorities. Uh, it's one-way submission. Ephesians 1.22, And he put all things in subjection under his feet, Christ's feet, and gave him his head over all things to the church. Again, that's not two-way mutual submission. Uh, Titus 3.1, Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient and ready for every good deed. Very similar to what we saw in Romans 13. James 4, 7, submit therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee to you. Is that submission to God, two-way, mutual? No, he doesn't submit to us, we submit to him, right? First uh, Peter 2, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king or one in authority, uh, to governors sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. Very similar again to Romans 13 and such. And then 1 Peter 3, 22, referring to Christ, says, Who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. Again, it's, it's that same word, hupotasso, it's always used in this one-way submission, subjection. Okay, then... Um, before we put all the pieces together, there's one other word here we need to look at. Top of page 27. Where it says in, in Ephesians, be subject to one another in the fear of Christ, that one another, in Ephesians 5.21, is the Greek word alelos. And it means one another, but it can be used in two different ways. So it can mean one another in a mutual everyone-to-everyone 
way, and it is used that way sometimes in Scripture. Uh, John 13, for example, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Is that one way or two way? That's two way, right? <clears throat> Even as I have loved you, that you also would love one another. Romans 1.12, uh, that I may be encouraged together with you while among you, each of us by the other's faith. Each other there is this word alolos. So it's, it's, it's ministering to one another in a uh, mutual way. It's just obvious from the context. Philippians 2.3, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Regard one another as more important than yourselves. Is that one way or two way? It's mutual, right? Two way. And you know that just from the context. It's pretty obvious. But look at some other passages here where that same word, alleluus, is used in a one-way relationship. Revelation 6.4. And another, a red horse, went out, and to him who sat on it, it was granted to take peace from the earth, that men would slay one another, and a great sword was given to him. Men would slay one another. So here I am in battle, I slay somebody, kill him, and he gets up and slays me. It's not, it's not two-way, right? It's one-way. Um, Galatians 6.2, bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. Now, that can maybe go both ways, but in most situations, when, when someone has a burden, it's those who don't have a burden who can come alongside of them, right? Now, maybe at future time, they'll have reversed roles, and then he can come along and come alongside the other one. But usually it's just this one way that when someone has a burden, others who are freed up from any burdens can help them. Another good example is 1 Corinthians 11.33. Here it's speaking of uh, preparation for celebrating the Lord's Supper. So then, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. Now think about that. Could that be one way? Uh, could that be two ways? You wait for one another. So I'm waiting for you to show up. And when you show up, then you're waiting for me? No, I'm already here. So it's really just one way. Right? Luke 2.15. When the angels had gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds began saying to one another, let's go straight to Bethlehem then and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. So picture the scene. Does one of them say to his buddy, let us go straight to Bethlehem then, see this thing, what has happened that the Lord has shown to us, and then his buddy says to him the exact same thing? No, it's, it's a one-way sharing of, of information. Luke 12.1. Under these circumstances, after so many thousands of people had gathered that they were stepping on one another, he began saying to the disciples, first of all, beware the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. So people were stepping on one another. I suppose it's technically possible for you to be stepping on me and I'm stepping on you at the same time, but that's probably not what the meaning is, right, from the context. People were so close together that they were stepping on other people. So the point is, that that word can be used either one way or two way. And it's used both ways in scripture. 
So how do we know, in any given case, which meaning is meant? Context. Context, exactly. So, what is our context? The context is, uh, in <clears throat> take Ephesians 5.21, for example, this one another qualifies the participle hupotasso, being subject to. And as we've seen, that word hupotasso always is one-directional. Someone being subject to someone else. It's always used that way. And the verses that follow illustrate that submission is to be one-directional in marriage, in the broader family, you know, with the children-parent relationship, and with the employer-slave relationship. All the examples that are given are one-way examples. And it's using a one-way word, hupotasso. Um, so those, those observations help us to see what is the right way to interpret this passage. And actually, a better translation that would emphasize that understanding might be uh, and being subject one to another in the fear of Christ. That one to another is this word, alilus. Um, and phrasing it that way make, emphasizes the point that in this context, what's being meant is a one-way submission. Like, you know, woman, you're not submitting. Or the woman's like, you know, you're too hard. And it's like, no, we're, we're both missing the mark. Exactly. We're, exactly. we're both missing the mark. It's a, like, as you say, it's, it's a high standard for each of us. Um, and in Ephesians 5 particularly, Christ is the example for both. The relationship of Christ and the church, uh, the example of Christ, his sacrifice for the church, um, to love your wife the way Christ loved the church. I mean, that's a tall order. Um, just as submission is a tall order. Uh, but it's God's design. And the beauty of it is that when we are doing what you're saying, that we're both focusing on all of the needs and all of our faults, and we're coming together to work through those in submission to the Lord. Um, it benefits everybody, and it glorifies Christ. And um, our, our knee-jerk reaction often is self-defense, right? And, and selfishness, and, and that just doesn't help at all. Let's flip over to page 28. Some more points to uh, help in our understanding of this this uh, interpretation. So husbands are never told in scripture to submit to their wives. The wives are told several times very clearly that they need to submit to their husbands. And there's no hint in any of these passages of mutual submission. And so, for example, in Colossians 3.18, a parallel passage, wives be subject to your husband as is fitting in the Lord. Titus 2.3 Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips or enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good, so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. 
First Peter 3, 1, in the same way you wives be submissive to your husbands, so that even if any one of them is disobedient to the word, they may be one that is become obedient to the word without your words necessarily, but by the behavior of their wives. So um, that relationship, it's patterned after the relationship within the Godhead. It's God's design. Both husbands and wives have um, messed it up. (laughs) And uh, sin clearly makes it harder to do, but that doesn't change the design or the command. Um, Likewise, if you keep reading in Ephesians 5, after the the verse that's been misinterpreted here, uh, in verses 22 to 33, that talks about this husband-wife relationship, specifies the manner in which women are to submit to their husbands. First of all, says, as to the Lord. So is our submitting to the Lord as him as our source or um, as a mutual submission? No, it's, it's a one-way leadership and authority and so on. It also says in verse 24 to submit as the church is subject to Christ. And again, that's not a two-way submission. It's a one-way submission. And then lastly, it, the passage is wrapped up where it says um, to show him respect, your husband. Um, show respect to your husband. The Greek verb there is the word phobeo, like phobia. It's a fear. It's, it's um, uh, usually translated something like fear or to be afraid or, or something like that. But more generally, it means to have great respect for, uh, even reverence, depending on the context, uh, to treat with deference or reverential obedience and so on. And in the context here, it's not because the husband is superior, it's because God has placed authority on him in the context of the marriage um, for everyone's benefit and for God's glory, even though it's a mystery and Paul acknowledges that this has been a mystery uh, and now it's, you know, and the, he's referring partly to the mystery of, of um, the, the relationship of Christ and the church was not all that clear from the Old Testament, but now it's becoming clearer at the time Paul was writing. And in like manner, uh, this, this uh, relationship of the husband and the wife being an example or, or following the example of the relationship of Christ and the church is also something of a mystery because it's really rooted in God's own um, essence uh, within the Godhead. Okay. And so the, the last uh, point here that I make is that interpreting five, Ephesians 5.21 to mean mutual submission violates the principle of biblical interpretation whereby numerous clear verses must govern the interpretation of a verse that is not immediately clear. We can't interpret a confusing verse in a way that fits with our preconceived notions because Scripture has much else to say along those same lines 
And if, if we twist a, 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 or try to get a verse to say something we want it to say, and then find that it's th- that conclusion is in conflict with other verses, what should our response be? Let's back up and reconsider what this is saying, because we know the best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture. Right? And if we come out with a conclusion that doesn't pass muster, often people, if they have an agenda, they will then start twisting these other passages to mean what they want them to say. And it's just a slippery slope. Right? So, you know, it, uh, a few weeks ago, I forget how many it was, you know, I, I um, preached a sermon on this kind of topic of um, the difference between exegesis and eisegesis. Exegesis means you get the meaning of the text from the scriptures. Eisegesis means you're putting you're you're putting an, an interpretation onto it that's not there. You have an agenda, basically. Um, it's not necessarily an agenda. It could be an, a, a hypothesis, and that's not inherently a bad thing. You you read a passage and you say, "I think it means this." What's the best thing to do at that point? From where? From mostly from the scripture, right? So, okay, I think it means this. Let me check it against other things. Well, let's look at the immediate context. Let's look at other passages that speak to the same subject. You may be using the same words that we're we're trying to figure out. Uh, is it consistent in scripture, or can it be used in different ways? Does that way depend on the context? And we've seen some of that today. Um, Ultimately, you can be asking other people. Um, commentaries can be helpful in some regards, but don't don't let them do your Bible study. Right. You do your Bible study first, so that you can interpret them appropriately if if you read them. Um, but the point is, you can have an open mind. You can have a you can have a theory. I think it means this. That's fine. But don't stop there. Check it. Evaluate. Does it make sense with regard to the rest of Scripture? Um, and your understanding can improve the more you do that, right? And say, "Oh, I, I was close, but there's some nuances here I didn't I didn't have." Let's say in, in my initial theory. Um, and in this context, it must mean this because of X, Y, Z, A reasons. Um, and so doing that study is, is work, but it's important work, because otherwise you could be very easily led astray, and possibly not with a particular agenda, but just out of lack of, out of laziness really is the word. You know, we need to put the work in to, now many scripture passages you read, and it's just crystal clear, it just, there's no, no confusion at all. But where there is some, no, I'm not completely sure if it's meaning this or this, then study. You know, work through that passage and its context and other passages. And, and um, with what kind of mindset should we do that? Humility? Teachability? Um, depending on the Lord rather than some agenda we might have? 
um, and praying that God, the Holy Spirit, would um, use his word to open our minds to understand what he has written. Uh, and it doesn't hurt to interact with others, get counsel, uh, refer to other commentators and so on, but uh, those aren't a replacement for rolling up our sleeves and checking the scriptures themselves. You remember the example of the Bereans in the book of Acts who listened to Paul, and what was their response? They wanted to go back to the scriptures to see if, and for them, the scriptures was what? The Old Testament. Um, Search the scriptures to see if these things were so. Paul was preaching from the Old Testament, showing how the Christ had to suffer and, and all that. And they very wisely went to the scriptures to evaluate what they heard, not, didn't start with their own logic. Now, there's nothing wrong with logic, but we can trust in it, and it could be wrong, right? Um, it's the scriptures that, that um, ought to govern yeah, and I was just going to add, I mean, open our minds to soften our hearts. Yes, right. right. So we need to be humble, teachable. Um, it's it's fine to have, you know, an, an initial impression about what something means, uh, maybe a theory, it must mean this, but check it out, check it out. Yeah. Good. Yeah. I just want to pick your brain on this. So I was talking to a friend earlier, um, he's trying to get to Berean, so he's listened to a podcast, I forget the, the name of it, um, but basically the, the two performing guys were given, a, I guess, a critique of the servant uh, leadership model, and so they, again, agreed with it, right, based on Ephesians 5, but they were saying that, um, I guess that the phrase they use, do you lead by serving or serve by leading, right, um, and so their critique was that the... Um, the servant leader, uh, I guess, position and argument has a tendency to turn into that two-directional. It's that one-directional reversing the direction. So the husband is so focused on the serving part that he's not doing the leading part. Um, so their argument was for the more biblical patriarchy um, position, um, emphasizing more of that one-directional kind of thing. So I was curious to see your, your thoughts on that. Well, um... Yeah, so taking the relationship in, in a marriage and what's being spoken of in Ephesians 5 particularly, um, it seems clear that there is um, a hierarchy by God's design within the marriage. Um, the husband being the head of the wife, it says, and the head of the family, and bearing responsibility before God for their decisions. Um, so that's a position, a position of authority that is, that is by God's design, not by his merit or, or anything else. She could be far wiser than him, but it doesn't, doesn't change the fact that he is responsible to God for um, their family. So that's a position. Now, how is it exercised is, is part of the question. Um, the wrong way to exercise that would be it's my way or the highway, right? An authoritarian kind of thing. Um, the example that's given to us in Ephesians 5 is the example of Christ who led by 
sacrificing for the church and also loving through that sacrifice. So is Christ an example for us? You bet. Is Christ um, um, uh, our authority? You bet. Is he serving us? You bet. Uh, Do we serve him? Yes, indeed. But he's in a position of authority. We submit to him because he's our ultimate authority. Um, and I, I think I think maybe where people get off the rails a bit is when they focus um, they focus on the the position, the hierarchy, without understanding it in terms of the relationship and the example that Christ set for us. Um, so, you know, the, the question that, that you started with, is it, do you lead by serving, serving or serve by leading? Mm-hmm. I don't see any difference between them. As long as you understand the, the, the structure, the hierarchy that God has designed, um, is the, is the husband to lead by example? You bet. Is he to um, uh, bear ultimate responsibility for that marriage? Yes, indeed. I almost think of it, your, your question like, what is the outcome that I want versus why am I doing it, you know? Because I think that little twist of perception changes everything. Yeah, because the, the, the critique that, um, that the, I guess the speaker was talking about, um, he says that even though a lot of uh, people within our circles are uh, complementarian you know, by our theology, but it practically it turns into more of a, a practical functioning egalitarianism. Um, and so we're trying to kind of offset that. So I was trying to figure out how that works. Well, yeah, I I mentioned, I think, a few weeks ago that one of the things that speaks to me from the example of Christ here in Ephesians 5 is husband is to love his wife as Christ loved the church. Does that mean that Christ um, gave the church everything the church wanted? No. He gave the church everything the church needs, right? And likewise, a, a husband, a loving husband, in a loving way, will serve his wife by giving her what she needs, at great sacrifice sometimes to him, not necessarily everything she wants, so that she's leading. Yeah. yeah I have some other thoughts on um, what you were saying. And that, you know, I'm thinking about, you know, so Christ is our example, and I'm thinking, okay, so what, what did Christ do that I can think of that is a good representation of, of marriage. And so no, number one is he shocked the, his, his disciples by washing their feet. Now, he's the leader, he's the head, and he's the judge, ultimately. But he says, no, I'm going to wash your feet. So in a, in a marriage, we would think, you know, we men would think, well, that's, that's not my role. You wash your own feet, or whatever that thing is, that, you know, you, you should take care of that. Well, Christ could have had that response. Like, it's not my job to wash your feet. 
But lovingly, he did that. Also, when, when, when the folks who were following him were hungry, he said, let's feed them. That also was not his responsibility. They're following him. And he's saying, let's, let's feed them. You know, and, and you, can, you can find it, it, then the healing, okay, yes, that points to the Father and gives, shows the authority of Christ, but he's also serving each individual. You know, folks come to him, and they're tugging on him, and they're like, okay, okay, and he's taking care of them. We don't think of leadership that way. So if we take, take marriage as we men and take that position and not get so theological over it, I think we'll do better. Yeah. Yeah. And I think we're all saying in various ways that, that um, um, getting the understanding right is the first part, but then living it out requires the right heart attitude. Right? And that's definitely true. Yeah, culture certainly is a huge influence on people's thinking. But um, contrary to what most people would think in the world out there, marriage is not a cultural construct. God designed it. And if we, um, if we exercise it, implement it, <clears throat> in a way that's contrary to God's design, even if the whole culture says this is the way it's supposed to be, it's still not going to be um, successful. It's not. Gonna, it's going to have all sorts of problems because it's not what God designed. The culture yeah. constantly changes. And it, yeah, it always, it always changes. And usually not for the better, no. right? But the word of God is always the same. Always so the same. The same. That's the same. Yeah. So I, I think if you ask most people in the world today, you know, what is marriage? Um, how did marriage come about? They would have sort of a cultural, social uh, description rather than a God-ordained description. And because of that, they, they, it's very easy for them to, in our culture at this point to, to take that view of this 50%, 50%, or just completely interchangeable, and who says they even have to be one man, one woman anymore? Right? So they, once they depart from the standard, anything goes. And who suffers? Everybody. Because of that. Yeah, it's, it's, it's hard enough for two believers who are both still sinners to, to work out that relationship the way God designed it to be. But when one is an unbeliever and the other is a believer, it's even harder, for sure. Not impossible, by God's grace, but definitely harder. Yeah. Well, we better wrap up and get ready for the worship service. Let's close in prayer.